Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. I'm Richard Dugan. We are in a new world, ladies and gentlemen, and it is a great world to be in. It's a beautiful place, a beautiful time, uh, and I honestly believe that the program you're going to be listening today is also going to add some beauty to your world. We come your way on Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., Monday mornings at 1 a.m., streaming live at richarddugan.com. The podcasts are at SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM, and others that folks are linking us to. And if you like what we are doing, you would like to become a part of it, you'd like to support us financially, we would be grateful for that. Uh, We have a PayPal and Patreon account for security reasons. I think that's a great thing to do. And it keeps track of everything, keeps everything uh, even and balanced and all that good stuff. And if you'd like to support us that way, we would greatly appreciate it. Thank you, thank you, thank you to those who have. And thank you, thank you, thank you to those who will. We'll even take energetic support as well. We also encourage you to go to our guest website. We'll be giving that to you shortly so that you can find out more about what we've been talking about. You can continue your evolutionary process. And uh, so uh, please uh, avail yourselves of that. All you have to do is click on either the name of our guest in the uh, player or the uh, little grocery cart that's in the upper right hand corner of the playlist. We uh, want you to stay with us here because we're going to be talking about a very interesting subject. It's one I haven't really dealt with before, but I think it's important. Uh, our guest uh, is Tiffany Jana, and uh, she uh, is joining us here via Skype. And she is also the author of Overcoming Bias and Erasing Institutional Bias, the current uh, work that she has collaborated with uh, Michael Baron, Barana, I beg your pardon, is... Uh, Uh, Subtle Acts of Exclusion, How to Understand, Identify, and Stop Microaggression. First of all, thank you so much for joining us here on the program and uh, coming to us via Skype, which is the safest way of doing it because you are, to say the very least, more than six feet away. (laughs) Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on the show. (laughs) You're very welcome. Now, this is a subject we have not... uh, dealt with much at all, quite honestly. And yet at the same time, we are here providing people with choices and knowledge of those choices to help make their dreams come true. We're also looking for those new ways of living because certainly you look around, the old ways don't work. Uh, But we're looking for those uh, new paradigms for a new world for everybody, not just a select few, Uh, that everybody should have exactly the same opportunity. I'm not saying that everybody has the same capabilities, abilities, uh, proclivities, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, We all learn differently. We all have different paths and so on and so forth. Uh, And unfortunately, it seems as though there is this new term. It's new to me anyway, uh, that you certainly refer to here uh, as microaggression. So I guess maybe we should start there. What is microaggression? So microaggressions are the small and sometimes subtle acts or, or words, things that we say or do uh, that cause people to be pushed to the margins, that cause people to feel excluded. So um, an example that we use in the book is, you know, you're, so you're interacting with a person of Asian descent and you ask them, oh, where are you from? And they tell you that they're from San Francisco and you say, no, no, no where are you really from? That is a microaggression because the assumption is that because they are Asian, they are maybe not from here when that's not actually the case. Well, I, I 
You know, that's interesting because I, I made a comment before we started about the fact that you have blue hair, and I made the comment that it's I, it's all natural. That's how it comes in. Uh, just a passing comment. Is that mm-hmm. considered a microaggression of any kind? I mean, wh- oh, where I do we draw I the don't line? I consider that a microaggression because in the world of of uh, black hair, right? Mm-hmm. My hair is actually natural because it's not it's not straightened. Um, and I don't have, you know, I'm not wearing extensions or anything like that. This is, I actually have a bright blue Afro. Mm-hmm. So my hair is natural by one definition and okay. I totally got the joke. I don't think that you were being exclusionary at all. Now, if you were within six feet of me and you reached out and said, Ooh, can I touch your hair? That my dear would be a microaggression. <laughs> but, but isn't, and I'm curious as to why it takes on the name of microaggression as opposed to invading your personal space. Uh, oh, amen, brother. Isn't that, isn't that astute of you? Yeah. In, in some cases, it is more of an invasion of personal space, whether it's emotional or physical. But the, I think that what makes it different from, you know, an overt act of racism or, you know, and just an invasion of space is the, is the intent. Um, and the intent is often, you know, there are a great many compliments, you know, Tiffany, I, I don't, I don't, I don't see you as a black person, right? I, how many times in my life have I heard that? A great many, mm-hmm. because I don't conform to their particular stereotype of what a black person is supposed to, you know, sound like, be like, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But it, it, in the case of a microaggression, people are often believe that they're being inclusive or believe that they're, you know, they're just, there's no malintent. The problem is intent does not equal impact. Uh, mm-hmm. It's interesting that um, this process of, of defining, in many cases, it's the vocabulary, it's the language, mm-hmm. uh, the words that are used. And I have spent, I don't know, probably hours <laughs> um, referencing the fact that words have power. And when you use certain words, your words are intended to elicit a particular result. Let's take politics, for example. Some uh, I have been challenged on this on more than one occasion. When I have uh, said, wait a minute, how can you say that about your opponent? Blah, 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 blah. To which they will say, Richard, don't be so naive. It's just politics. And when it's all over, we'll shake hands and, you know, continue on. And I sit there going, no, it's not politics. You are using those words with a particular intent. The intent is to get elected to that respective office so that you can have the power and the control that you think that office holds to do whatever it is you think you're going to do in that in that position. So it's not just politics. And especially in the 2016 campaign, nobody seemed to get that message. And I have to say that the one thing that bothered me more than anything else about the 2016 campaign was that when I was in my 20s going through personal growth and development programs, that was a period of time in my history where we were dealing with the issue of victimhood. My mother and father, they did this. That's the way I am. It's their fault, not mine. And then, of course, we kind of moved forward a little bit more and a little more as we got into the 90s and finally took responsibility and realized, oh, 
We're not codependent. We're interdependent and so on and so forth. And all of a sudden, 2015, 2016 roll around. I'm going, wait a minute. What are we doing? Doing the 80s all over again? We're victims of everything that's going on around us? Where in the, where in the heck is our responsibility? If we're such a great nation, it's not somebody else's fault we are the way we are. It's we're responsible. And, and I think that's one of the things that I'd like to talk to you about in terms of the power of words when it comes to this issue of microaggression. Yeah, so I I tend to begin these kinds of conversations by checking in with people and asking whether or not they identify as good people, right? Are are do you identify currently as a good person or are you are you aspiring to at least be a better person tomorrow than you are today? And by and large, most of us believe that we are good people and we are trying to maybe not cause harm and we want to be better. I find that most people do. Now, folks who are outside of that spectrum, that's a whole different conversation. But for those of us who are on a self-improvement journey, then I think it is imperative that we recognize that through no fault of our own, we have internalized a great number of biases, Mm -hmm. a great number of you know, stereotypes, preconceived notions, you name it, through really credible sources, right? Our parents, our clergy, our teachers, our friends, our social groups have all reinforced these ideas that, you know, maybe in the 80s or the 70s or the 60s or the 50s may have been okay, um, but certainly in 2020, they may not be. And the problem is we don't very often take an inventory of what has been trapped on our hard drive. And I believe that those of us who aspire to be good people do have an individual and collective responsibility to take, you know, take that agency and figure out what the biases are that we have and be intentional with how we speak to people and how we treat people. Well, I know that from my personal experiences, from growing up, uh, and I was born and raised in Phoenix, Arizona, went to Catholic school for two years, kindergarten, first grade, and then public school through uh, 12th grade. Um, I went to uh, junior college for a whopping three semesters and then a vocational school. And then I've been in the, as they say, the school of hard knocks or hands on, if you will, uh, ever since. i uh, been in this business for 40 years. And I find it interesting how when you share with somebody your specific, oh, how do I put this? I do not like people standing behind me when I'm working. I just, it drives me crazy and they know it and they do it. But then there are others who actually hear me say that and they stop standing behind me. Uh, that standing behind me would not be considered a microaggression. It's just a, an inconsiderate individual who knows that I really would prefer that they stand off to the side or in front of me while I'm working. I think that could become a microaggression if you've, if you've told them that it's something that you don't do and they choose to persist. It, it does start to move into that infringement space. Well, but it's see, not it's not an identity based microaggression. Right. Um, but it certainly is a you know, it is a, a, a small and aggressive act. Yeah. <laughs> and yet I would I would put it back to what I mentioned before about, you know, well, they're just invading my personal space and I wish they would get exactly. out of here. 
But mm-hmm. you know, I guess I, 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 we're not we're not playing semantics here, are we? This this is some serious stuff because in many instances, children who grow up and end up exhibiting certain, shall we call them, antisocial behaviors uh, or even self-destructive behaviors, um, had these quote-unquote microaggressions heaped upon them. And sometimes it can be just in, what, like very subtle words or phrases uh, that, that we heard as we were growing up? Yeah, and it's sometimes it's sometimes it's it's not even actual words. It can be in the absence of words. For instance, you know, on at, at a at a smaller level, I I did not realize until I attended a, a historically black college university that throughout my education, I went to Catholic school like K through thirteen. Uh, I, throughout my education. I was expected to be the lowest performer. People continuously underestimated me. I was an army brat, so I changed schools every one to two years of my life. So I was perpetually the new kid. And people always thought that I was going to be, uh, you know, just not a good student. I was pretty much always the only person of color in all white environments. I didn't realize that that was the expectation of my instructors until I attended an African-American university where the instructors expected me to be smart. They expected me to perform. And I didn't know until I experienced that, that I had perpetually experienced the opposite. And that was, you know, I, I always proved myself to be the highest performer. And I, you know, I got over it. It wasn't a big deal. I didn't even realize it was happening until, you know, hindsight. But what happens with a lot of students is it's not even the words. If teachers don't think that they are uh, capable or that they're intelligent, they'll find themselves in situations situations where they might even try to raise their hand in class, but the teacher doesn't call on them. The teacher doesn't assign them to go into the, the higher level of, of, of study group or the, um, you know, or the honors class. There are a lot of opportunities that students will get bypassed for uh, groups that they don't get to participate in because people are operating on their own assumptions. Hmm. When I was a kid growing up, and first of all, I have a great love and respect for my mother and father. Uh, One of the things that my mother, one of the phrases that she used to use um, on a a fairly regular basis, and I'm going to be honest with you, uh, I I wasn't uh, necessarily, I wasn't quiet. Gee, I wonder why I chose this business. (laughs) Um, But my my mother loved to use uh, the phrase, if we got a little, a little mouthy, you know, stop being so flippant. Not a big deal. Not a big deal. It's mom trying to get us to behave in a particular way. Uh, and I've even made the comment to them both here. They're both in their 80s now. And I was visiting them uh, some time ago. And uh, I remember telling them uh, that uh, the man who is sitting in the Oval Office today, if I know this for a fact with my mother, that if I spoke in any way, shape or form or behaved in any way, shape or form the way that man does, my cheeks would be extremely red from being slapped over and over. She would not put up with that. Okay. Uh, my father, when we were uh, when we were younger, and again, this is this is not a disparaging comment. This is just a phrase that he used to throw out when we would do something that he perceived of as really kind of stupid. Really, you know better. You know better. There's a difference between stupidity and ignorance. Ignorance is you don't know. Stupidity is you do know and you do the stupid thing anyway. 
And his phrase was, you idiot child. Now, it wasn't a lot. And honestly, I didn't put a lot into that at the time until probably my, probably my 20s and 30s. And I started taking a look at that. And I owned my behavior in the circumstance. But as time has gone on, my father has praised me. He has told me how proud of me he is, how much he loves me. And, on, and the list goes on. Okay. And so we've, I, we've gotten through that. I don't have any issues in that regard with my father. I, re, I really am happy and I love quoting him constantly. I consider him a very wise man uh, who, you know, I'm in this business because he told me, get into a job you love to do because you're going to be doing it for a long time. Don't get stuck like I did. Now, he only got stuck for a short time and then he went back to junior college and so forth. But there are situations where those kinds of phrases are reinforced over and over again. Even by your schools, my, my present wife has dyslexia and they didn't help her one iota. When I met her and she shared this with me and she would read something to me and it took her a while to get to that point. I let her read and I let her stumble through. I wouldn't try to guess what word she was trying to make out because she had to figure it out. And now she reads in front of other people that she would have never done 15 or 20 years ago. Is there any kind of plan or program that you're aware of within our educational institutions that is becoming more aware of the differences? I don't want to use the diversity has such a weird energy to it, but the differences in the way we learn that they are starting to accommodate, if you will, or at the very least, at least they're beginning to understand, even if they don't know how to teach that person, they know, I know you, you struggle with this and I'll do what I can to help you. I don't really know how, but we'll work it out kind of thing. Yeah. So I'm not, I'm not a specialist in the, in the childhood educational space, but I have raised three children. All I'm in the, I'm in the process of, uh, finishing up with the 13 year old, but I've got a, a 23 and a 22 and a 21 year old. And I, all of my kids went to different school systems for that precise reason. I tracked with them when they were very young and I tracked that with the kind of learners that they were. And I placed them within educational structures that really catered to their style of learning. So one of the unfortunate things about our, the American educational system is that they do tend to be, um, from my experience, they tend to be very good at at a particular way of teaching. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, but from my understanding, increasingly, uh, educators are are getting more training on understanding cognitive diversity. Sorry about the D word, but it's real. Uh, and <laughs> oh, I know, I know. <laughs> cognitive diversity, neurodiversity, they're very real, and and you know, and the both adult and childhood learning styles are, are, are very different. So, you know, folks who do it really well include like my youngest went to Montessori school system. Um, they're very, very good at identifying how a child learns and adapting to their learning style. But that is a, you know, our, our, um, study of the human brain 
and how we, you know, how we cognate and how our minds work is something that we're, we're gaining new insights on that every single day. And I believe that as those insights are developed, we're getting more and more access like trauma informed teaching is a, is a, is something that's getting a lot of traction too. There, there, you know, the, the numbers, the sheer percentage of children who are enduring some kind or have endured some kind of trauma or abuse or neglect or whatever is enormous, particularly as you enter into the public school systems, how you teach a child who has been uh, exposed to or is being exposed to trauma is very different to how you emotionally relate to and instruct a student that lives in a, you know, an otherwise, you know, sort of stable, secure, emotionally supportive household. So I believe that we are making strides, but we don't have any kind of unified, um, you know, sort of policies or methodology around addressing that across the board. Uh, a, a lot of times it comes down to resources, you know, depending on what kind of teachers and what kind of, you know, backgrounds they have that a school system can afford will often dictate what is available to the children within those structures. Why is it called microaggression and not bullying? Is, aren't they kind of the same thing? Well, bullying is actually aggressive. Right. That's a that's a whole that's that's a that's a little bit different. I would say that there is a relationship. Right. Because, you know, where you see bullying, bullying happens with intent. Again, the difference is intent. So you're saying um, that bully, my, you're saying microaggression is more of an unconscious happening. Yes. OK. My, microaggressions are related to unconscious bias. Okay. So if you look at my my first my first two books, Overcoming Bias and Erasing Institutional Bias, I I work in kind of and study that space of unconscious bias. Subtle acts of exclusion is actually a rebranding the term microaggression because like calling someone a racist when you say, you know, hey, you just committed a microaggression, you know, when you say when you tell someone they've just done something racist, nobody says, "Oh, please tell me more about my racism. Thank you so much. I want to learn from this place." So we want to rebrand it as subtle acts of exclusion because it's a little bit more clear about what it is and it and it kind of get lets people a little bit off the hook for that you know, that causation, that intentionality, a bully targets you and intentionally, and we're talking about workplace bullies, schoolyard bullies, bullies are bullies, but they, they are coming to get you on purpose. Uh, the person who, you know, listens to me speak or, you know, listens to Barack Obama speak and says, oh my gosh, they are so articulate. They actually think that they're paying us a compliment. They just don't understand that calling a person of color articulate, who is literally a president of the United States or a professional award-winning speaker, of course we speak well. We speak for a living. We are intelligent. You wouldn't say to a white male CEO or a white professional speaker or a white president, oh my gosh, they're so articulate. That is a word that's been used over time that kind of um, as subtly communicates that your expectation is that a person of color is not going to speak well. Comments that I will make about people in that context are geared more towards my profession and their voice, the way they sound, not the articulation, not the diction, but sure. maybe uh, uh, someone who has a deep resonant voice or maybe somebody who used, you know, uh, if you if you can uh, if you can go back to uh, the old FM radio where they were playing yes. jazz and the guy was was down low or, or if you uh, watch WKRP in Cincinnati and Venus Flytrap was doing <laughs> the midnight jazz, that kind of thing. Uh, and and going, man, you should you should do voice work or or women who that's another thing, too, that. I was very strong on when I was hiring people at other stations. I wanted to hire the women over the men, not because I, I'm a, a, a sexist, 
but because they got what we were doing more than some of the guys. The guys had these egos that just wouldn't quit sometimes. And, and then sometimes they would even come and, you know, you tell them that to, ta- to do this particular task, which had virtually nothing to do with the radio broadcasting, but it had to do with maintaining the facility, keeping it clean. Mm-hmm. Well, you don't pay me enough to uh, do that. I'm sorry. That was in the job description, pal. <laughs> but it was the women who, uh, plus the fact that the, do- the, the, the industry was dominated by male voices. I wanted... Okay, I'll use it. I wanted the diversity of female voices on the ah, air. you said it. I know, I did, I know. But I really <laughs> did. I And I still feel that way, that there, that there are more female voices on radio and in television, which is fantastic. Because I don't want to hear, it's like uh, I'm here at this station, and uh, we are a station of four. Okay, there's the general manager. There's our morning man who also records our news for our news hours. We have a part-time gentleman who comes in and, and, and runs some of the programs, and then I do everything else. And I run 95% of the programs, and I record most of, I used to record most of the commercials and promos and everything. And it was like, I was all over the stage. I was like, I got to get some more voices on here. I like my voice, but not that much. And so we've been able to incorporate more and more. And a matter of fact, one of our part-timers, wives or, or, or partners, she has an awesome voice. It has that, that res- I don't think she's a smoker. I think it's just natural. And apparently she used to work in radio. She used to do production and so forth. And I love the fact that she has availed herself to our station. Uh, but that, that's kind of how I feel. And that's one of the things that I've often wondered. What are your thoughts uh, uh, setting the, for example, the affirmative action program aside for a moment? What if applicants to a university submitted their documents with a number instead of a name, instead of any, any kind of identifying marks other than their academics? Wouldn't that be a better way to do it? Or is there still a problem with that? No, in fact, there's uh, technology to assist with that. So we've actually got uh, a number of organizations that do different different versions of that. Uh, so both in, uh, I don't know if it's, I don't know if they do that at the university level, but they certainly do it at at companies where mm-hmm. they will uh, they will anonymize the the names and and the applicants will be numbers, and they remove any kind of identifying information that's going to give you any clues as to their gender, the institutions they attended, because people create unconscious biases around people who went to certain schools. Um, they'll get rid of any um, you know any fraternity or sorority associations, anything that's going to give you an idea of their interests that will bias you. The only thing that you get is relevant experience and qualifications for the job. And it's been incredible at, at actually, uh, yielding a better, better diversity in the selection process. But the problem is you still have to be casting a wide enough net to attract greater diversity into that pool in the first place. And people are often, you know, not winning on that end. So you've got to really hit it from multiple levels, but yes, that is a technology that exists, uh, that is very useful and gaining a lot of traction. However, unfortunately, in the business as well as educational arenas, uh, you uh, you still have the problem of uh, the good old boys network wanting to hire more good old boys, mm-hmm. you know, for you know, obviously the whatever reason. But at the same time, let's say you cast a wide net. Let's say you kept it anonymous. Eventually, you have to call these people in. You have to meet them. 
And at that point, and of course, this is probably extremely prevalent uh, across the board. Once you've met them, now you have their name, you start doing background checks. You start going on social media to see what they've been posting, uh, which is that's a whole nother area. But at the same time, I, I have to, I, I, I've asked this of other business people. All right. Let's set our politics aside, ladies and gentlemen, for just a moment. You're a business owner. Here's a man who we have seen his behavior. We've heard his words. Would you hire him in your company? And I will tell you, if I were hiring people, he would not be at the, he would be, he wouldn't even be on the list. I would never hire someone with that kind of behavior, with that kind of language, um, because I don't want that kind of, and I know the another common term that's used today, I don't want that kind of culture <laughs> in my workplace. Uh, is it is is that is that still considered microaggression or are now are we now entering a phase where we have the right to. Oh, I'm going to use another D word that I don't I, I don't know that it's the right one here. We now have the right to discriminate based upon uh, a person's track record, social media record, <laughs> police record. Uh, and so forth. So I am, I, I'm not an HR specialist. I call my work HR adjacent and I have, uh, I have people who work with my company who mm-hmm. are HR specialists. So they know the details of this better, but it is my understanding that it is either illegal or at least unethical to use the contents of someone's social media in your hiring and discrimination or discernment process. Now, you know, what we do is we advise people on the other side, look, if you're, if your social media is open, that that's then shame on you because people are going to do that. So you have to be very conscious, very, you know, very careful not to, um, you know, uh, you know, as an employer, that's, it, it's a very slippery slope because people can initiate discrimination lawsuits. And if they can tie things back to, um, you know, you potentially seeing their picture or whatever, um, that could be really sticky. So you have to be very careful about that. Uh, so as far as the, you know, discriminating based on, you know, criminal background and things like that, it's going to be very hard to, for, for, for people to avoid doing that until there are regulations and accountability and backlash for doing so. Um, people do have, have the right to choose who works within their organization and, you know, it's it's just that's that's a that's a difficult thing. You know, people can look for culture fit if they want to. And this is where it is. I think the onus is somewhat on the parts of those of us in the field to educate uh, leaders and educate hiring managers on the importance of having all kinds of diversity because we do have mountains and mountains and mountains and decades of research that bear out over and over again the, the reality that the more diversity you have at all different kinds of levels experience race class etc education you actually do increase your business outcomes in in measurable ways substantial ways the ways that you actually care about so the unconscious and the overt biases really do not serve the organizational end and, you know, can be problematic on so many levels, but people just for some reason aren't getting that message. Can it go too far? Can the, the whole aspect of diversity go too far to where now a company has, and I just throw this out there, they have one of everything, so to speak, okay? 
but they don't really know what they have. And yes, they're productive, and yes, the people get along fairly well and so forth, but it's like, okay, now we have this, uh, we have this male, Asian, uh, 25-year-old, and he's moving on to something else, so now we got to hire another male, Asian, 25-year-old to fill his slot. um can this can this go haywire and go a little too far in this respect we definitely want to stay away from tokenization right we don't want to token and make a token out of anyone um when you have the only lonely syndrome that is a terrible thing you don't want anyone to be the only one of anything that's um that is that is just that is that is reducing people to their identities the and there that's why there's the the acronym for you know, i like jedi uh justice equity diversity and inclusion right so i do jedi work thank you very I much i like it i like um, it the, <laughs> so the reason that the acronym has so many damn letters is because you know, when this this is a fairly young industry, it only came around post civil rights, right? Mm-hmm. And so we first we started with, oh wow, now we have women in the workplace. We have to make ladies' rooms, right? We've got to make different accommodations. Um, so we started with having different kinds of bodies in, in the workplace and trying to adjust for that. Well, that's the most basic level of diversity is just having different kinds of people. Where the rubber meets the road is is, is the inclusion space, and that is the how you invite people to join the work. And there's a metaphor that everybody seems to love, but it's you know, diversity is. Uh, inviting me to the dance, right? Uh, inclusion is inviting me to actually dance at the dance and uh, maybe playing my music, uh, music that I like. And then belonging is um, actually using my playlist, right? So it's like you, you can have me, you can invite me to show up, you can actually dance with me, or you can play the music that I actually like. And those experiences are very different. Mm-hmm. Then equity is about everyone having the opportunity like you said about the you know the the the, you know the organization that you're involved with right you want everyone to be able to be successful you want everyone to be able to have an opportunity to to do well if you've just got different bodies there and you're still only promoting promoting white males or one particular demographic or people who went to a certain school then you're missing the point you're not actually giving people the opportunity to bring to bear the richness and the fullness that all of those diverse identities actually can bring to innovating in your space and, and affecting the bottom line and creating more relevancy for your stakeholders. So you don't get the benefits if you're faking the funk. But, okay, and your point is well taken. However, if um, uh, Broadcast Institute A, and I've got Broadcast mm-hmm. Institute B and C, they supply me with potential candidates and I've had more success with broadcast Institute a I'm going to want to select from that institution more than B or C because I get better quality people from that institution. Is that unfair? Mm-hmm. No, that, then, then that, that becomes a uh, pipeline issue. That's a whole different challenge. Whole different right? Thing. Okay. Right? So in that case, in that case, we want to find out what it is about Broadcast Institute A that is yielding such great results. And I mean, if if all of the people who come out of Broadcast Institute A don't, are, are are not representative of you know of a homogeneous uh, demographic representation, then that's fine. If you're only able to get one flavor of human from that institution, then the onus becomes on you to either communicate with Broadcast Institute A to say, hey love the caliber of people that are coming out of your institution. But have you thought about, 
you know, creating more opportunities to, you know, to, to, to convert these or, or um, confer these beautiful skills onto a wider swath of the population of people, mm. or you can solve the pipeline problem yourself by building relationships across dimensions of diversity with different kinds of institutions by identifying specifically what are those skills, qualities, traits, abilities that are coming out of Institute A and how can I cultivate them more broadly across a wider base of people? Maybe one thing might work, and that is to go to institution Institute B and C and and say, I've been selecting primarily from A because of the quality of their people. Here's Mm -hmm. what I think you need to add to your curriculum. And if you would like, I would be more than happy to teach it to the folks in your curriculum so that we can get better people out of all three places so that we can have a a broader perspective. I have to tell you that I I taught at three different broadcast schools back in Phoenix. uh, And I loved teaching. I just absolutely was jazzed by it. Um, I remember being told that I had an hour and 15 minute class that I had to give. And I wasn't worried about it because all I was going to do was teach them what I already know. And I don't (laughs) want to be sitting here, uh, Tiffany, I don't want to be sitting here holding on to all that information that I've gathered up over the last 40 years, hoarding it and, and saying, oh, no, no, because if I share this with someone else, then they'll they'll know everything that I know. And then I could lose my job. I didn't look at it that way. I said, I want to share everything with everybody because then guess what i get to move on and do other new things and exciting things and have fun (laughs) and i think that that that's something that uh that we're i don't know maybe we're starting to learn in all different areas i find it interesting though you can't do a lot of the stuff i was suggesting uh at the educational or 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 or, um, uh, business level uh when when looking for a job However, you can do it if you're looking for a partner, you're looking for a mate, you're looking for a husband or a wife, uh, you know, someone to spend time with. Uh, Yeah, if you want to do a social media check, you're free to do so. If you want to do a background (laughs) check, you're free to do so. You know, Uh, unfortunately, there are a lot of people who could do that and they don't do that. And then they wonder why they're in the mess they're in. Uh, But then again, uh, you have that whole law of attraction thing we won't go into right now. Uh, I think that that uh, one of the questions I want to get into when we come back from our break has to do with what all of this uh, microaggression does at the soul level. And uh, that's one of the areas that we deal with here on Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. And we will be right back. Tell me your stories. I'll do my best to And welcome back to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. We're talking about subtle acts of of exclusion. And, of course, it focuses on how to understand, identify, and stop microaggressions. Tiffany Jana is my guest. Uh, Her co-author is uh, Michael uh, Baran. And um, I'm curious as to how the two of you hooked up for this particular collaboration. Uh, And I'm going to tell the folks you're a beautiful black woman and he's a good looking white guy with with uh, he's got some great gray hair on his face, too, just like me. I love it. I love it. Yes, he is a white Jewish man and also a diversity expert. We met at a, at the uh, the oldest diversity conference uh, in, in the world, I believe uh, that. That is the Forum on Workplace Inclusion. It takes place in um, in uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota, every year. 
And we met there and we began collaborating through our, our respective companies uh, for, for quite a few years. And then after I had written a couple of books, uh, Michael had expressed that he wanted to write a book, but even though he was a Harvard professor, he just hadn't gotten around to it yet. And we settled on a topic that we were both interested in. No one had written a book on microaggressions. So I love finding uh, new authors, folks who haven't written yet, and kind of uh, guiding them, sherpaing them through that process. And it's uh, it was a fantastic journey. Oh, that's a great word, by the way, sherpaing them. <laughs> it I, might be a microaggression, so I'm going to take it back oh, and say oh, no. uh, guiding. <laughs> oh well, you know, I mean, hey, I and I have to, I have to, I'm going to come at it from this perspective real quickly. There's a part of me that's sitting here and going. Come on, just get over it. Come on, let move on. What's the big deal? Tell me what yeah. the big tell me what the big deal is. Yeah. Because that's not how I believe. That, that's not how I believe. Yeah. So of course, of course. And I know I, I completely get the impulse, and a lot of people do believe that. So thank you for, for you know for, for for bringing it up. So the, the issue is if you take me for instance, I represent five intersectional minority identities. So I am a person of color. I identify as, as gender non-binary, non-conforming. I use they, them pronouns. I'm not offended by she, don't worry. Um, I am, so I'm a gender minority. I identify as LGBTQ. I have an invisible disability and English was not my first language. Okay. So any one of those is enough to cause a little bit of marginalization in this particular country, but all five of those create an interesting, uh, an interesting mix. What happens when you are, particularly when you are identified with a marginalized group is that the microaggressions that you experience, they're not isolated incidents, right? If I had a dollar, literally a dollar for every time in the course of my life that somebody made a big deal out of the fact that I don't confirm to their racial stereotype of what blackness is, I would be, you know, a, a, a woman who was wealthy in a different way, right? Mm -hmm. Because it is, it's always been, well, you don't sound black. Well, you don't really look black. Are you mixed? Are you both of your parents black? You don't seem very black to me, right? All of these different things. Um, and so each individual one, probably pretty harmless, but the fact that I have heard these things thousands of times over my lifetime, it be, it's, you know, we, we wanted to call the book, and, and I'll take credit because Michael immediately saw the problem. I wanted to call the book Death by a Thousand Cuts, but that, <laughs> that actually is, right, a form of culture, a form of torture that was associated with a particular culture, and that would have itself been a microaggression. But that's what it feels like. Mm -hmm. You know, if you are disabled and or you're a person with a disability, my apologies, a person with a disability um, who, you know, who has people consistently doing and saying little irritating things that they don't mean any harm by. It's just utterly exhausting and it serves to make you feel invisible or unimportant or unappreciated. Um, and, and this is this goes right back to what you said before the break. This is what affects the soul, right? So if you are a person who is constantly being assaulted, a teeny tiny little assault over and over and over again every day, you know, this is the kind of stuff that can lead to suicide, that can exacerbate depression, that can put people in a place where they just feel less than, like they feel undervalued. And it's, you know, it's, it's unfortunate and dangerous. Yeah. What's the difference? Here's one that 
you hear this from a lot of folks on from from all the corners, if you will. Why is it okay, in particular here, for a let's just say a black comedian mm-hmm. to be self-deprecating about mm-hmm. himself? about his race, about his gender, about his disability, about any of those other categories. Mm-hmm. But if somebody who isn't in one of those categories says exactly the same words, there's hell to pay. Yeah. So the, the best metaphor I can give you for that is, is the example of the family situation, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you, get, you were very transparent and vulnerable in saying that your dad used the I word with you. He called you the idiot child. Um, you know, not the kindest thing in the whole wide world to do, um, you know, and I'd be lying if I said I'd never said a similar thing to at least one of my children. Right. Um, it, it's real. Right. Yeah. Now, if your teacher called you the idiot child and you came home and said, Dad, my teacher called me an idiot and, and does it all the time. Would that have flown? No, not at all. No, not at all. Same deal. What we do do and say within our family structure, it's a whole, it's a different thing because we have a relationship to ourselves and a relationship to each other that um, basically it's a, it's a set of shared experiences. We understand the perspective from which we are coming. This is why, like, if I think about Rachel Dolezal, people got, you know, were up at arms about Rachel, Rachel Dolezal. I actually think Rachel Dolezal was ahead of her time. Race is a social construct. The nature of a social construct means that you it's something that we self-select into. There is no scientific basis for race, okay? So I believe that she's transracial and that one day people are going to be identifying by all kinds of races that they identify for themselves. The only group of people who I believe are justified in really being pissed off at <laughs> Rachel Dolezal are, are the black women that called themselves her friends. Because when a group of black women are together, drinking wine, hanging out, commiserating about the events of the day, week, year, that is a sacred space. And there is an assumption that we all have a similar perspective, that at one point we were all little black girls and that we experienced the world in a certain way to have been, quote unquote, lied to by a friend within that in, that intimate space. That is a, a personal violation. But everyone else. They need to just shut up and let that person identify. Look, I want to see you not break character for nine years. That was a commitment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was. It was. Uh, Hollywood is calling. Hollywood is calling. <laughs> exactly. Good, good acting job. And she and she was working for the cause. I mean, black studies and the NCP. Yeah. It's not like she was taking advantage of it and. And not trying to help the people. So anyway, yeah. that's my opinion. <laughs> uh, a couple of other things I want to touch on here. One of them has to do with this aspect of um, the opposite. All right. I grew up. I was born legally blind. I was bullied in school. All right. So the students gave me a hard time, to say the very least. But the teachers did everything they could uh, to foster in me uh, a, a fairly decent uh, level of self-worth to to the extent that, of course, I uh, managed to uh, secure the moniker of teacher's pet. No. Is that is that the reverse of microaggression or is that still sort of an again, it's unconscious as we've defined. it. No. OK. No, I, th- I think that they were they're doing something we, they called um, they were putting their thumbs on the scale. Right. So I feel like that what they did for you was every bit as important as 
you know, like, like, like uh, affirmative action, right? Like, mm-hmm. why should we, why should we discriminate in favor of the marginalized? Well, because we've been discriminating in favor of the majority for 400 years. Yeah. And in order to right the wrong, we have to discriminate in the other direction to create a sense of balance, to create, again, that equitable opportunity for everyone to be successful, regardless of their starting point. So you had a starting point that was way further behind the line than the other students. And what those teachers were doing is they were they were trying to let you know that, yeah, you may be behind the starting line, further behind the starting line, but that is not the only thing about you that defines who you are. We see you as a whole person with a great many talents and gifts, and we're going to show you that you are important and you are valuable. And that meant a little bit of extra love and care and attention, but you needed that. Equality Equality and equity are two different things. Equality is every kid gets the same thing. And there are there are 20 available resources and each kid gets one. That's equality. Equity is some kids have way more resources than the others. And some are starting behind the line. So we're going to have to give five resources to this kid here because they didn't go to preschool. They didn't have a set of advantages. They don't they can't buy a pencil case or lunch. So we're going to give them what they need to be successful. And we're also going to take care of the other kid and meet them where they are. Yeah, I just completed uh, filling out my 2020 census form. It's a matter of fact, the first one. I kid you not. It's the first one. That I can remember ever filling out. I'm almost 60. Okay. I've had at least four other times. Not five, but four. 20, 30, 40, 50, and then 60. I don't remember ever filling it out. But here's the thing. And and this will be the last point we'll make here. I was frustrated because I couldn't check off all of the boxes that I wanted to over which race I identified with. (laughs) To the point I had my DNA checked. Now, as a kid growing up, I was told where we came from and we came from all over the place. When my DNA came back uh, and I used to tell people as a kid that I was Heinz 57, that I'm all over the place. When my DNA thing came back, it turns out, remember Heinz 57, I come from five of the seven continents on the planet. Wow. And... American Native American Indian, and I'm not just speaking of North American, I'm North, Central, and South, my heritage. Uh, I am one, uh, I am a, a, a European Jew, maybe 1%. Uh, I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm all over the place, okay? Which actually makes me feel pretty good. I feel like a, a world citizen, which is, actually, I did check other, and I put world. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my wife chose something a little different, and that's fine, and she can do that. Um, what about that aspect of, of the continued splintering, if you will, of um, our... <sighs> Awareness of who we are that's almost to the point of uh, um, separating us from all other uh, other humans because, well, no, 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 you're you're only 67 of the 912 and I'm 93 of the 100, 912 and and she's 407 and you're 12 and you're six. And it's like, so we're all different. And it's like, OK, I'm not sure that this whole DNA testing thing was necessarily a good idea. Well, uh, so what we what what would be a better idea is an accurate education. And 
that is one of the the huge disservices that we have done to our residents and citizens and continue to do to our children. We don't give them the truth about our history and the truth about our own humanity. So you're talking about ethnicity, right? So ethnicity and race are two different things. Ethnicity is what you can test for, where your people come from, Mm -hmm. right? Your DNA. Race is a social construct that was designed to justify some really gnarly behavior when folks wanted to take people and resources from other folks. And if we could Mm -hmm. just justify that some people innately have more value than others and some people are more barbaric and animal-like than others, then then civilizing them and and treating them like partial you know percentages of people is an okay thing to do now i'm not bitter and angry about that because no one here created that mess we all inherited it together now we do have a collective responsibility to deal with what we have inherited and course correct for that mess now there is no there's no there's no problem inherently with us all being um, diverse. I think that the exploration of our ethnicities is is a is a joyful, beautiful one because it does give us a connection to the greater part of the planet and helps communicate something that I had the good fortune of learning by the time I was eight years old, and that was that while the 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 difference differences are many, what we have in common is far greater. We are one human family. When we talk about the soul, I think we are all tapped into one collective soul. I like to use the metaphor of a spaceship. I have a spaceship with a bright blue windshield and you have a spaceship with a bright pink windshield and we are all the same energy occupying different spaceships. And what you see and the trajectory of your jet fuel through your spaceship, that's a journey that I can only learn if I hear your story. And this journey of my spaceship, I can only tell you what happens on my spaceship and what I've seen and learned by getting to know you. And that is relationship. That is what the the human story and the contact is. So we can't stop using the ridiculous racial construct because even though it's not real, we have over 400 years of history and legacy built into and invested into that construct, so much so that race is actually predictive of outcome. Why on earth are African-American people and black people dying at a rate of seven times more than any other race in the United States from COVID-19. Why? Because of healthcare disparities and health disparities. Mm. By virtue of the biases built in within our systems and the unconscious biases that our brilliant and wonderful and heartfelt physicians have, people are getting different levels of care. People are having stress and racism exacerbate their existing illnesses. And it just makes a perfect storm for all kinds of nonsense. So until race ceases to be predictive of outcome, we still have to use these wretched categories because people like me will not be able to measure our progress if we stop checking those boxes. But I wish that we could get rid of it and just say we are one beautiful human family and we can all love each other because I am you and you are me. And it is the similarities that really where everything rests. You know, uh, we all went through the eight years with uh, Barack and Michelle Obama and their children. And I have to tell you that, uh, number one, the comments made after his first election, uh, someone actually stated that until we can stop saying that he or or she is the first black or Hispanic or Catholic or female president, we haven't come far at all. 
But the second point I will make of a positive nature is I'd just like to sit down with these people and talk. They just seem so damn friendly and open and and they know so much about so many things. I don't care what color their skin is or how tall he is or how muscular Michelle is. I know she could hurt me really bad. Uh, (laughs) I, I, I would love to, for example, dear Michelle and Barack, We'd like to invite you to dinner next Tuesday at 7 p.m. in our cottage, our two-room cottage, just to sit and chat. Uh, Just to have, and and it wouldn't be to say, oh, guess what, Uh, Tiffany, I had Michelle and Barack over at my house the other day. No, 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 no. Look who's coming to dinner. We love to have conversations with people about so many di- I would love to get into into their spirituality not their religion but their spirituality uh, their souls and and uh, even w- how his soul was miffed and vexed during his presidency uh, through that process uh, uh, some incredible stories but also how how different he is today, even she is today, after going through that experience. Would they, obviously they did it once, or they ran for re-election and won, but if if they had it to do all over again, would they really do that again, put themselves through that? Oh, they would. Uh, oh. I can answer that for them. <laughs> I, I, they, they absolutely would, because, yeah. you know, man, man the, the, the... I mean, they weren't perfect, they weren't perfect, but they no, sure they were nice. No, they, they, they represented so much like you know people are like oh well i mean okay even if we're not post-racial you know we've we've elected black people yet that is still a, a huge a huge milestone and the reality is one of the things that holds back um particularly my community right the african-american community when i i live in richmond virginia the capital of the confederacy and the vast majority of the african-american people who live here are direct 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 descendants of enslaved africans who never left the region I'm, you know, I'm, I was an army brat. I, I came in here. I've lived all over the country, all over the world. And the, but the energy of that legacy is very strong. There are children in this community that have not only not been to New York City or Washington, D.C., they've never been to the James River, which is in some cases less than a mile or two away from where they live. And the James River is beautiful. It's the only class four rapids running through a major city in the United States. It's a big deal. And so the idea that, you know, why do so many black kids want to be NBA and NFL stars? Because that's what they see as the quintessential level of success for people who look like them. The fact that we have now had a black president and a black first lady communicates to generations of children of color that that is something that is possible, right? Mm -hmm. I didn't think I would see that in my lifetime, did not see that as a possibility, but I grew up with a family full of PhDs and MDs and JDs, right? Yeah. Business owners and moguls and all kinds of amazing yeah. history. We've been literate since since the times of slavery, um, and that has provided a great deal of advantage for me and my lineage. Not every black person has that story, so they would do it again because they recognize that their theirs was an act of service on so many levels, including the spiritual soul li- levels. They represent yeah. a level of liberation for black people that goes way back through our ancestry and ripples forward into the infinite future. Yeah. Well, I have to tell you, Tiffany, Jenna, that this has been an extraordinary conversation, which I would love to continue at another time because 
there's still so much more that uh, certainly we can talk about. And even uh, to that extent, uh, maybe discussing if you and, and your partner there, uh, uh, Michael Baran, uh, have come up with any solutions or treatments or ointments or, <laughs> or pills that, <laughs> that we can distribute uh, to help people to become. See, I have a hard time. Um, I am not in favor of political correctness per se. My emphasis is on being conscious of what you are saying, being aware of who you are talking to. You do not have to censor your message, but you could at least choose some words that would be even more descriptive than the, the words, the simple uh, derogatory uh, uh, words that uh, may be in your vocabulary. Um, right. Uh, I, then I, just a case in point, my, my first wife's family is from Russia, her father. Uh, her grandfather got out of Russia the night before the Bolshevik Revolution. If he hadn't, we never would have met because she never would have existed, most likely. But they told me that in Russian, they do not have words or they didn't have words for like car and washing machine and dishwasher. They had one word and it was translated machine. Well, how descriptive is that? It's not, <laughs> especially if you're talking about your uh, about your car and taking it to the mechanic. So I on, I am a, a staunch advocate for education of on all levels, in all possible ways. It doesn't have to be institutional. Uh, it just needs to be available for everybody. And I cannot thank you enough for sharing this time. Tiffany, Jana, I have three final questions for you that I'd like to ask before we let you go. And when this whole craziness is over, I would love it if uh, you find yourself out here on the West Coast in Santa Barbara. We continue this conversation in studio uh, because, again, there is still so much more to say. But, hey, we'll do it via Skype again. Uh, that'd be fine, too. Oh, no, I'm really, really honored to be here. And I, you know, I agree with you. Political correctness, not my jam. Uh, but I do think that, you know, if we if we're willing to take the responsibility to to reach out to each other in love and compassion and care, it just means that we have to know a little bit more about people and their circumstances so that we can be empathetic. And that is precisely why I've written all of these books from the perspective of the individual. Um, and they can be scaled up to the organization if people want yeah. to do that. But yeah. I don't like books that tell me the problem and don't give me any solutions. So all of my books are independent studies that allow you to do the personal work that must precede any kind of diversity work. Yeah. And then it will help you make more intentional and informed choices as you interact with the beautiful souls that you meet on your journey. I hope I don't get in trouble for this next phrase. You go, girl. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not mad at you. <laughs> My three final questions before we go. You may have touched upon the answers during the interview, but I do like to ask the questions directly. And the first is, who is Tiffany Jenna? Uh, Tiffany Jenna is a joy-seeking vessel, an awareness artist, and a pleasure activist. Uh, and, and my awareness artistry is all about finding any medium that I can to create an embrace of humanity with arms wide enough to leave no one out. What is it that you hope to or want to achieve through the work that you're doing now? 
I hope to bring people into a greater awareness of their own beauty and their own joy and a greater awareness that there really are no differences between us, that we are all one universal energy and that the embracing of another is just the embracing of your own heart. And finally, what is your life's purpose? (laughs) I think it just wrapped it in those previous answers. (laughs) Um, But yes, my life's purpose is to find joy, create joy, and express joy, and to demonstrate love of the world by loving myself out loud Mm. and by inviting everyone into that space of love and creative power. Well, I again, thank you so much for the time you've given us on this program. And I encourage people uh, to go to what website? TMIconsultinginc.com is my company. TMIconsultinginc.com. And I'm Tiffany Jana, J-A-N-A, on all social media. T-I-F-F-A-N-Y-J-A-N-A on Instagram. And I've got a YouTube channel called The Life with Doc Jana docu-series and all kinds of helpful things. Um, yeah. Excellent. Excellent. And we will be linked to that uh, TMI website as well. Uh, at first, I thought it was too much information. <laughs> <laughs> it might be. I have words, too. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> there you go. Again, thank you so much. And I thank you for listening to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. We're giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. And I'll, until our next broadcast podcast, love to lull. <laughs>